The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So it's nice to march through books of the Bible because you wind up occasionally in what I call um, theological um, uh, ruts or theological quagmires or parts of Scripture where you look at it and go like, what is this doing in God's Word? Like, this is a train wreck. So this is, this is one of those passages this morning that um, it's kind of a, a train wreck. And it's, it's, it, what it does for us, though, is paint a picture of a reality um, where we live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. So I want to open this morning, I want to share something very dear to me, uh, near to my heart. It's something that over the course of time I've developed into an art. I would tell you that I have mastered this particular action. Um, It's something that comes up just from from the very depths of my being. Um, It's something that I believe nobody has ever really mastered over me the way I have done it with myself. Uh, I picked up this skill at a very, very young age, uh, and I've continued to work diligently on this skill. And as it applies to me, it covers every area of my life. It it deals with my money, my work, my social life, every aspect of my being. And so I want to, that's that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's, It's how I am equipped and how I can lie to myself in a manner which nobody else can even come near. And not only do I lie to myself, I believe the lies. So we're going to talk a lot about this, about the lies that we hear, uh, the lies um, that we believe, um, and, and hopefully maybe how we can spot some of these lies. Now, if you lie to me, I can say, I, li- I can look at it and be like, you're lying. Yet if I look in the mirror and, and utter the same words, I can't tell that I'm lying. There's a quote here uh, from Derek Alindi. He's the death bringer. The lies we tell our other people are nothing compared to the lies we tell ourselves. Uh, another quote, I'm not going to give you some Russian guy. He says, lying to ourselves is more deeply ingrained than lying to others. And I'm pretty good with that. So, I, I want to share a couple of the areas where I lie to myself. Maybe see if you guys can draw some parallels. Um, because when I lie to myself, I, I, I'm doing, there's a motive for my lies. And it's a good motive. I want everything that will benefit me to be at my disposal. I want and want and want. And the problem is those wants get in the way of lots of and parallel some of these lies. See, if I want something and I don't have enough money, what I'm going to do is justify it. I'm going to tell you, like, I won't get this 70-inch TV ever again. Like, it's on sale. It's Black Friday, right? You say, I got to, I need it versus want it. You see, once you classify things differently, you can justify these things as something you need to give to yourself. I I was thinking more importantly, because we're in church, um, about my sin, the way I lie to myself about my sin. And, And none of you have ever done this. First of all, if, if I want to lie about my sin, you know, one of the things I'll tell God is, look, I'm just a man. I got feet of clay, right? Right? That, that just gives me a pass to sin, doesn't it? 
How about this, when, when we sin? Well, this is only going to be a one-time event, right? I, I'll do better tomorrow. So if I drop the ball, which I'm planning on dropping today, well, I'll pick it up tomorrow, and this won't happen again. But I'll get a pass today. How, how about the statement that I can stop doing this sin anytime I want? It doesn't control me. Now, here's a, a great thought here. Is controlling sin relevant? Like whether or not it controls my life? See, I start having a conversation with God and myself about my sin, and it's totally off topic of being an offense against the holy God. I start talking about whether or not I can control it and how well I can manage it. Well, that's irrelevant. It's called treason. It's, it's sin. It's an offense against the holy God. How about this excuse? Have you ever just said, I'm a sinner? You just kind of throw the towel in. Oh, I just dropped the ball. Like, oh, well, I'm a sinner. I'm a, I'm a fallen human being. Have you ever used this line, well, nobody's perfect? That's madness, by the way. Because what it does is discount the power of a holy God to enter into my life and, and, and allow the very essence of Christ to indwell me and alter the foundation of who I am. And I give the excuse, well, I'm, I'm just kind of a sinner and throw the towel in. Nobody's perfect, right? And you, now I'm referring to God when I say this, you are not reasonable in putting upon me these kind of expectations for purity, for holiness, to curb my mouth. To, you know, when I get angry, not to say things that are hurtful or venomous. And I, Black Friday, we're, it's, it's, I, I think about this. Have you ever justified a sin by saying, I can afford it? Whether it's financially, emotionally, or spiritually. You know, well, I can afford it. It's not like I'm, I've already tithed to church. Like, is affording a gluttonous indulgence because you can afford it giving you a pass to do the indulgence? Like, again, what, what Satan does, and he's the father of lies, is that he's going to take this, this focal point of who we stand before a holy God, and he's going to shift the playing field to a point where we're not even talking about the offense against God. We're talking about some other aspect of this sin that's wholly irrelevant. Like, is affordability relevant to when it comes to sin? Like, whether or not you have enough money in the bank, does, you know, how much is enough? If, if gluttony weren't a sin, it might be a different story, right? But these overindulgences are sins. I think about this in our culture today in terms, you know, it's nice when you have somebody who comes from a place that's not polluted by the American consumer toxic culture. And you see the extremeness of more, bigger, and better, and what we can have, and, and how we preoccupy ourselves with all of this stuff, versus being concerned with clean running water, let alone having it be hot, right? All right, that's a big difference, right? You know, we hear those statistics by Dale about, you know, a billion people living on two bucks a day, and don't bat an eye at a $5 latte, and you're like, there's a disconnect here that unless you step out of the system, you can't even see it. Now, I'm going to give you some good news. I think there's an exception to that, that, that when we soak in God's word, or better yet, when you step into the light, no matter what culture you're in, no matter what people you surround yourself with, no matter what lifestyle you've had, when you step into the light, there's one thing that happens. You can see. How about this lie? 
Um, it's the only area in my life that I really struggle, therefore I get a pass in this domain, right? You're really good with all these other areas of your life. Oh, I have this one failing in this area, and you kind of just sweep it under the rug, and you get a pass, right? So how about another one? God, I've served you well, thus you should give me some grace here. You know, you do things right for a period of time, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I need a rest from this holiness, right? This is, this. And when you say these things out loud, it really becomes insane. That's the good news about lies. When you bring a lie into the light, you're like, that's absurd. That's crazy. I was looking at quotes from Einstein, and one is misquoted, by the way. It says this, only two things are infinite, the universe and man's ability to deceive himself, and I'm not sure about the former, meaning the universe is probably not infinite, but the capacity for me to delude and lie to myself is. The actual quote is that um, only two things in this, uh, only two things are infinite, the universe and man's stupidity, and I'm not sure about the former. I like that. So I'll get back to you guys. I'll, I'll give you a confession. I'm working on some new lies for myself. Because they, really when you discover you've been lying to yourself in a certain area, you can't go back and live there anymore because you know it's a lie, right? So then you have to drum up other ways to find the lies. And you say, why, Jonathan, are you going to this great length to talk about all these lies? Because we see David in color lying to himself and those around him this morning. And we see Saul bring home the fruit uh, the mother load of lies. It, it just comes home. And you go, wait a minute, this isn't the Bible. And what's really fascinating is that David's classified as a man after God's own heart. He's the gold standard. He's, you know, he's the gold standard when you strip away the gross failures in his life. And in a week or two with Samuel. But there's some horrific failures, yet God looks to the man's heart. And that's what I think really holds David up highly is because even at the end of the day when he dropped the ball, he wasn't a guy that at the end of the day would give you an excuse. He'd own it. And, and it tells you how uncommon that is. Another quote, I love this one with Einstein. When I examine myself and my methods of thought, I come to the conclusion that the gift of fantasy has more to do with my talent than for absorbing personal knowledge, meaning he likes to live somewhere else that has no correlation with reality. That's what he's saying. And when you think about us as believers, what's the reality? The things of God, the things that are unseen. Yet I fill myself with lies about the world in which I live so I can justify gratifying myself, my wants, my needs, my desires. So let me ask this question in opening. What lies are we telling ourselves this morning and believing? Now you're saying, well, if I knew there were lies, I wouldn't believe them, right? It's one of these questions that we want to look at that. What are the lies that we're telling ourselves and believing? And hopefully this morning, it'll, it'll kind of open up a little bit to kind of shake some pieces loose to say that that's not the truth. Because as I continue to live my life, two things I'm aware of. First of all, time goes real quick. But secondly, our actions matter. In the midst of that, our behavior has profound implications in the cause of Christ. So with that, we're in Samuel. I want to get you up to speed real quick. We're coming down the home stretch of the book of Samuel. We have seen Samuel, God's anointed prophet, come to become this great prophet of Israel, to install the first king, Saul. 
we see Saul rise to the occasion, but then slowly but surely fail to live up to his anointing. And things just go, really, this morning, we see them go complete, completely sideways. We have seen the favor of God depart from Saul and depravity set in, which has really been most pronounced in how his persecution of David, God's new chosen king for Israel, how Saul's persecution of David for a 10-year period has come into play, with no basis, by the way. We've learned of David's passion for the Lord. We've seen David stand against Goliath in triumph. We've witnessed David's almost fanatical unending loyalty to King Saul in spite of Saul's unrelenting persecutions of David. We've also witnessed this unique bond of love between David and Jonathan, this truly special relationship. Jonathan was Saul's son, the intended heir of the throne over Israel, but Jonathan has acknowledged David's divine appointment as heir over this throne, over this this nation. And in the home stretch, we've seen David have repeated occasions to kill King Saul. Yet David has said, not by my hand will I assume this throne. It will be God placing me there. And last week we saw this last incident where David enters Saul's camp, takes Saul's spear, which is actually stuck in the ground right next to where Saul is sleeping. Even as Abishai, David's, uh, excuse me, uh, even as Abishai, yes, David's assistant, tries to convince David, and this is great, last week David sees the lion, says it's crazy. David's assistant sees the spear in the ground next to Saul where Saul is sleeping. David's like, I can't kill him. And Abishai says, don't worry, I'll kill him. It won't be by your hand, it will be by my hand. David's like, that's a lie. Because I would be granting you the authority to take his life. No, we will not take his life. And then we see David leave Saul's camp. David calls out across this this valley to Saul's army and Abner. Abner was Saul's personal guard. David has some fun with Abner in particular. He suggests that Abner should maybe look for a new job if he's not executed for failing to protect the king. And um, he, presents the, he presents this spear to return the spear as proof of the fact that David is innocent of any intent to harm David. And so now we're up on chapters 27 through 31. I think we've got only one week left of this. Um, we'll do chapter 27 and 28 um, this morning, which is I'm just going to skip a stone across it. But we, we, these last couple chapters are um, the, the, the events that will have to transpire whereby David um, will be able to assume the throne, and that really concerns Saul's departure. So we pick up chapter 27, verse 1. David said in his heart, or to himself, I shall now perish one day at the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So you go, did we miss something, like, really big here, that I'm despairing that I will perish? Wasn't David told by Samuel that he would be king over Israel? And wasn't everything that Samuel prophesied coming true up until that point? Had not Saul even confirmed that one day David would assume the throne and be king over Israel? Had not Jonathan, Saul's rightful heir to the throne, said, I'm not going to get the throne. You're going to get it. And had not we seen repeated events how God delivered David from Saul's pursuit to kill him? Yet David sits here and goes, well, I think I'm going to die. Do we see the lie that he starts telling himself here? And so you say, how did this happen? How does David all of a sudden, out of the blue, come up with this lie to say, I'm going to lie to myself? 
Oh, a couple of things going on. The, the, the cliff note answer really is this. Spiritually, he's not taking care of himself. And that, that's how we know we're going to start listening. to. You don't, if you're not taking care of yourself spiritually, you're going to listen to lies. Because that's the only thing you got. Okay? That's it. There's, no other, there's nothing else being served except lies. So there's no record at this point of David consulting God for guidance on whether he should go to this land. Now, there are numerous instances throughout the book of Samuel where David's like, should I stay in this city or should I go? And he'd consult the priest or he'd pray to God. And he'd get a clear answer. And at this point, it's really interesting because the, probably the only lawful high priest is a guy named Abithar, uh, Abiathar, excuse me, which was the son of Ahimelech. At a certain point back in Samuel chapter 23, all the priests are murdered and this one son of the priest escapes. He actually takes the ephod with him and there's the Urim and Thurim in, in the breastplate of the, of the ephod. This guy has been hanging out with David the whole time since he escaped Saul. So he's got an in-house priest. If you're wondering, do I need some help here? Can I consult of the things of God? If you, if you don't want to talk to God himself, he can just go grab the in-house priest. No conversation like that going on here at all. It's interesting. There's not even a reference to God in this entire chapter. So you, so you start to see where he's, he's wholly adrift. Verse 2 picks up. So David arose and went over, he and his 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moak, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, and he and his men and every man with his household. And David with his two wives, and I'm going to butcher this one. I think it's Ahimnom, but I'm not sure, of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. So now here's a little more that they give us information. You've got to say, why did they give us all this information about men of these families and the wives? So sometimes I lie for really good reasons. It's not just that I'm a liar. I lie for good reasons. And so we get some information here that I think that comes into play with his motivation. And, I, and I, hopefully the women in docs are going to support me this, at least if you have kids. So here's a question for the wives and mothers of Doxa. How many of you would prefer to live in a tent over a brick house? The ones who want to live in a tent, raise your hand, please. All right. Note, for the record, those listening on audio later, no woman has raised her hand here. All right? No tents. We don't like tents. They let the bugs in. He's been on the run. And he only have one wife. He's got two wives. Imagine that. Now, if we could marry multiple women today, that's a really bad idea. That's just bad. And it's interesting because, sadly, in the future... It's going to turn into a train wreck, this thing with women and David. And it shouldn't be a surprise for us men, by the way, that it turns into a train wreck. But so now you're out running around, somebody's chasing you, and you say, I can live in an enemy territory under a foreign king in a godless environment, but I can have a brick house. Or I can live in a tent and honor God. Now, unless your wife is the spiritual giant in the household, where are you going to wind up? And I don't mean that in such a derogatory manner, but you got a real choice here. And it, from a practical standpoint, where do you wind up? You wind up in the brick home. And you don't want to talk to God about that because if he says go live in the tent, your wife's not going to be happy, right? So why would you even consult God for that matter? Hence, we have David moving into this situation. And, you know, it's, and I don't mean that in a negative manner with your wife, by the way, at all. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says that if you can't marry, that's a good thing. Because if you do marry, you have responsibilities of the spouse that really take precedence and priority. But it doesn't mean you need to move in with the Philistines. So, having said that, 
David to lie to himself and to disregard seeking the Lord. So what motivated David's lies? What drove him? What fueled the lies? And let me tell you what the answer is. It's fear. He says fear of losing his life. That was real easy. David says, I'll lose my life. And so let me ask you a question. How different are we from David when it comes to fear? I love this. Of all the liars in the world, sometimes the worst are our fears. So we have a fear that comes up from within ourselves. And we're thinking one of two things. I'm not going to get what I want, or I'm going to lose what I have. Let me say that again. Fear comes two things. I'm going to lose what I got. You're going to take it from me, by the way. It's not just going to go away, right? Somebody has to take it. Or I'm not going to get what I want. And David's fear here is crystal clear. He's going to lose his life. Or his wife's going to be unhappy. He's not going to have a happy wife. That's probably even more important, right? For us men, right? All right, good, thank you. That's a weak amen, man. We're going to have some problems. There's another fear that comes into play here too. The fear of letting others down or not being liked. And if you really own that, you know, how many, uh, uh, don't give me hands, but how many of us men have ever sat down and wrote out what we're really fearful about? Got quiet before the Lord and said, I am fearful of, dot, dot, dot. Put it in black and white. Fear feeling economically, not being liked, failing professionally, failing not being valued or respected, failure of just not being able to stand up among those people I stand with. There's a term for not being liked. It's called people-pleasing. And boy, I see people will mortgage their soul three times over. They'll get a 100-year mortgage on their soul to make other people happy. Because if you're happy, gosh, everything's got to be all right then, right? Right? No. The problem is, with all of these lies, behind all of these lies is that if I get what I want, I'll be happy. That's the biggest lie. Look at Black Friday. If, we get, if you get it, you'll be happy. Has anyone ever received anything in here where they said, now I'm happy, no more work? Just smooth sailing for the rest of the life. I got the home on the mountain, or I got the good job, I got the beautiful wife, I got the nice new car, I got all the bells and whistles on all my appliances in the house. Everything is hooked up to Wi-Fi. I can flip the switch and my whole house works. You can be happy then? No. And the problem here behind that, one more step behind that is this. The big lie, and it started in the garden, is God can't be trusted. I mean, he really doesn't have my best interests at stake. Clearly, my best interests involve lots of materialistic things and gratifying my flesh and keeping me happy, right? And healthy and strong and prosperous till the day I turn 102 and then just drop dead of a stroke. And preferably on a missions trip, right? Or a martyr two weeks after getting a fatal diagnosis, right? But at 98 years of age, that's how we want to go. The lie, the lie is that God can't be trusted. What did Satan say? Did God really say? Did God really say? Can you take him at his word? And here's the problem, and this is the big problem with us today. We don't even know we're lying. Oblivious. You don't even know you're lying until you wake up at the Philistines' countryside date day in. Hey, this don't look like the promised land. This doesn't look like what God had intended for me. Why am I subject to a foreign king who doesn't worship the Lord that I worship? And you start asking yourself these questions when you can't sleep at night. Where do you go then? Where do you go? So, so how do we avoid falling into this trap? 
Just a couple quick things. There's a lot of ground to cover. Be accountable to somebody. Have somebody in your life that can speak truth into you. Somebody that you will listen to. You see, if there are people around you who speak truth and you're not going to respect or listen to them, it's pointless. Find somebody whose opinion you value. And if you don't have that, good luck. I mean, I look at my life today and the things that I got right, and I always say this, I'm like the, if there's something that's working in my life, I am like the turtle on the fence post. There's only one conclusion you can draw. Somebody put it there. And that somebody is, is a godly community and the favor of God resting upon me that, that those areas of my life are working. Um, it's because I have had people in, in my life who have lifted me up, who've encouraged me, who've pushed me, who've challenged me, who've believed in me, and most importantly, who would give me the truth when I'm telling myself lies. Be accountable. Spend time in the Word. You know, it's amazing to me that when I sit down and I get quiet, and you got to get quiet, get quiet alone with God, it's like stepping from a dark room into a room full of light. And one thing immediately happens. You can see. That's the good news, that the solutions to our difficulties are simple. That you go from darkness to light. It's that simple. And you can say, I've lived in darkness my whole life. I don't care. You step into light today with me. And if you get into trouble, it's in the shallow wind. You stand up, you'll be fine. You won't drown. It's only about an ankle deep. Thank God. The deep things of God. It's, 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 I tell myself, oh, I couldn't fathom that. What, who would I become if I really listened to God and did what he wanted? Spend time in the Word. When we're unclear about where to go, don't go. When we're unclear about where to go, don't go. And if you have to go, just then, then, then spend a little time in prayer, talk to somebody, weigh out the pros and cons, and know that God allows you turns. But I have found most of the time in my life, I don't have to go. Now, I might not get what I want. That's, that's screaming at me, go, go, go. You're going to lose it. You won't get it. You'll lose it. This one opportunity won't come up. All this madness. And pray. Talk to God about it. So we pick up in verse 4, and it was said to Saul that David had fled to Gath. He no longer sought him. So it sounds like, here's the scary thing. Our lies, when we believe them, sometimes appear to work. Where would David be if he didn't have God repeatedly place him in close proximity to Saul where he could have taken his life but chose not to? Think about how profound the witness is that God had the opportunity as Saul pursued as Saul pursued David, that God displayed his favor in the midst of the pursuit. Repeatedly, time and time again, where you see only God could have allowed me to walk up and snip the corner of his robe. Only God could have allowed me to walk up and take the spear three feet from his head and not plunge it into his heart. Which gives me confidence that as I allow God to go before me, there's a holy, sovereign God who is truly active and engaging in my life. And I can bank on it. And now David runs off to a foreign land and the whole show ends because this pursuit and the testimony that follows it can no longer transpire. So he goes to this foreign land, this king, uh, Akshish. Why would the king of this Philistine country be so kind to David? Well, the answer is easy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Have you heard that? The enemy of my enemy. Who's the enemy of Saul? David. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's very easy. Um, and everybody knew Saul wanted David dead. Further, David was a great warrior, and the king knew that if I can snag this guy and get him to fight for me, two things will happen. First of all, I'll win because he's, he's a great fighter, but see good because he will be loyal to his dying day. 
So the king allows him to come in. David, it's really interesting. So David goes out, in order, he moves in, says he lived there a year, four, four months. So he's, he's got to make a living. So he's going and raiding these villages throughout the Negev. And so what happens is that David goes and raids these villages. These are the villages um, from the Old Testament. Um, when they entered into the promised land, God commanded the Israelites to slaughter these people. And what happened is they didn't. So David's going back to these communities in the Negev with the, these Canaanite people that were supposed to be slaughtered that weren't, and he's slaughtering them. He's wiping them out. And the scripture reads women, children, everybody. And you think, boy, that's hard. But the problem is, is if you have people who worship foreign gods, whether they have big bodies or little bodies, you see, little bodies grow up. To, if, if you're a body that you're, you're going to worship foreign gods, no matter whether your body's big or little, you're going to grow up to worship foreign gods. And they said, wipe them out. That sounds pretty hard. But it also tells you how God views sin. You don't coddle sin. You wipe it out. And so the king says, well, where are you getting all this booty from? He's bringing back all these animals, his clothing, all kinds of good stuff. And he says, oh, I'm raiding the villages of the Negev. And he lies to the king by inferring that he's raiding the Hebrew or the Jewish villages. And so here's the problem. Have you ever heard this? A half-truth is a whole lie. See, if, you got, if you're having a conversation with somebody and you say, technically, I didn't lie. Technically. Have you ever done that? Technically? No. If you got to use the words technically to explain your excuse, it's a lie. Just, just stop it. It's over. It's a lie. And so let me give you a principle here, a very simple principle. A disobedient servant lies to himself and others. And that's really the theme of this morning. A disobedient servant lies to himself and others. And the horrible, the, the problem with truth and principles is that you can't get around it. So you're either going to obey God or you're going to disobey God. And if you're going to obey God, you'll live according to the truth and be in the light and everything will be fine. But if you're going to live in darkness, you don't have a choice. You can't even see the truth. You can't even find the truth. Your default is to lie. A disobedient servant lies to himself and others. So I ask you this morning, where have you been lying to yourself or others lately? Where have you been lying to yourself or others lately? Are you lying to yourself about a relationship in your life that you're saying it's okay? We're, we're okay. And you know you're not. Are you lying to yourself about how you're living? That you know you're not living in accordance with how God wants you to live. How you spend your money. What you're doing for a living. You know, I got to provide for, for my family. Or worse, maybe how you're behaving at work. So most men, you know, oh, I got a lot. Oh, I got to provide. If, if, if I tell the truth about this product, nobody would buy it. Well, maybe it's time to stop selling it, right? I lie to myself most often in relationships. About my relationship with my spouse, about my relationship with my kids, about my relationship with God. It's all right. How are you doing, brother? Good. Other than tell your face. Because he looks at you and says, you're lying. The relationships are where the rubber hits the road in our walk with the Lord. If you got a problem with your brother, you bring a gift to the altar, what does he say? Go fix it. Leave your gift here. Now, he said, leave your gift here because they still want to take the gift, right? In Matthew, he says, leave your gift at the altar because if you don't come back, we'll take your gift anyway, right? If you can't be reconciled, don't worry about it. We'll take the tithe there. 
But you see all, and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you see all these things. If your brother asks you to go a mile, go to with it. You know, it's all relational. It's all relational, not mostly, not partially. The other stuff's like putting Legos together. It's easy. But the relationships. And so the question becomes this. When we wake up in the morning and realize, I'm, you know, something's been eating my lunch about how I'm behaving, or maybe even about how somebody else is behaving. You know, how do you manage that? Pray that God will either fix it with them or that you've got a duty to bring it up. If you have a brother in front of you that's sinning and living according to a way of living that you know is clearly wrong, and you stand there and say, well, you know, we have a right to live our own life, that's a lie. We are our brother's keeper. It's a lie. It isn't the member of Christ, it's the body of Christ, meaning that the functionality of the body, the whole church, functions, it's, it's contingent upon you acting in conformity with how God's calling you and me doing the same thing at the same time that allows the body to work. And if I'm the leg and I'm broken and you're the arm and you got to get somewhere to pick something up, I can't bring you to where you got to pick it up. I got to point out your leg is broken. Now, you're going to say, no, it's not really broken. I just sprained it badly. And then I'm going to ask you to look at it. It's going to be swollen three times bigger than the other leg. And you might say, oh, maybe there is something wrong here. But the madness there. So let me, let me throw a couple things out very quickly. Confess it. Would you just own it? Own it. Just own it. Write it down. I've dropped the ball. And confession obviously does a couple things, four things. Confession isn't by yourself, by the way. Confession's to another brother. You bring it up, sit down with somebody you trust, somebody who knows to keep his mouth shut or her mouth shut. That's important, by the way, because we don't want to build gossip. And walk it out. Walk it out. And then clean it up if you've got something to do with it. Now, we've got to move on quickly, and we're going to close out with some other things we can do. So Saul seeks an answer. My outline, by the way, was this. I didn't even give it to you in the beginning. I was going, it's hard when you don't teach consistently and regularly. My outline was this. I'll give it to you so you can see where I was even going. So I won't lie to you. The good news is I've, I've covered a lot of ground. The, the breakdown was this, David seeks a refuge, that was chapter 27 and a couple verses into 28. David seeks a refuge, and two is Saul seeks an answer. So there, there's David seeking a refuge, but it's not really a refuge, is it? You know, that chapter where David seeks a refuge in the Philistines, it closes out, and it says this, basically they're going to go to war. And this king comes to David and says, you're going to be my right-hand man, you're going to protect me. And I remember the first time I read that passage... I was like, no way. <laughs> this guy has put himself into a jam of biblical proportion. He's pledged loyal. He's given this king his word. So he's either going to kill his fellow Jews and keep his word to an ungodly king, or he's going to lie to a king and, and, and go and try to protect his people. And I remember thinking, how does he get out of this? And what's really amazing to me is that he gets out of it in the most crazy way. And, and the, the good news there is for us, when we drop the ball, when we sin, when we fall short, when, when we just make a mess of life, that if we'll turn back to God and say, I dropped the ball, he, he's going to provide a way to clean the mess up in no time. Or if he doesn't, he's going to use it for your good in a manner where he's going to get the credit. And you're going to know that he gave you the solution to get you out of it.
So Saul seeks an answer. And so we know in the beginning of chapter 28, Samuel has died. Actually, Saul hasn't spoken with Samuel back from chapter 15 when, when, when Saul called him out, when Samuel called Saul out on the rug for um, failing to kill uh, Amalekites. They kept all the nice animals. They were supposed to kill them. And he kept the king alive. And that's the reason that God's upset with him. He says, I give you my word and you disobey me. And so what Saul does is says, I'll never talk to him again. It's not that there's a problem with God here, that you are representing God. It's that if you bring news on behalf of God, I'm going to avoid you in the future if I don't want to hear from God. And that's what Saul did. Don't stop going to church if you hear bad things, by the way. Just keep coming. Saul's put the medians and, and the necromancers, the, the medium and spiritists, out of the land. About one of the only things that we read that he really got right here. Philistines were prepared to war against Israel. Saul sees this great army, and he's shaking in his boots, and he's shaking his boots for good reason. And so he, he, he inquires to the Lord, the Lord doesn't answer him. That's because he shut that one down. He moved out of the Lord's zip code. And now God won't answer him. Surprise, surprise. In verse 7, Saul says to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who's a medium, that I may go and inquire of her. And the servant said, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. And so now Saul's in trouble. He goes to the Lord, but it's too late. And really interesting now, he said he, he actually used the Urim, which was one of these, uh, they were some type of personal article, the Urim and Thurim, which were in the breastplate of the ephod. And he says, well, I've already consulted the Urim which is a lie because that's back with the priest who's hanging out with David now. So he's got false articles that he's using to seek God, the madness here. And as a last resort, he seeks out this medium or spiritualist. Um, a medium is one who would claim to communicate with the dead. A spiritualist is somebody who communicates with evil spirits. Leviticus 19.31 tells us this, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritualists. For you will be defiled by them. The act was punishable by death, according to Leviticus chapter 20. It's really interesting. So from a theological standpoint, I don't have time to go into this. This is really, really bad stuff. And our culture has so widely embraced spiritualists and mediums, it's sickening. Like we're oblivious, in caps, you know, talk about the lies that we just walk around. I type in popular medium and spiritualist. Let me tell you what I find. This is great. George Anderson, for decades, now this has used his extraordinary gifts to help grieving families communicate with their loved ones in heaven. A humble, natural-born medium, he's been communicating with spirits since childhood. That sounds really pretty innocuous, right? He's friendly. Teresa Caputo, you guys know who she is? The Long Island medium. I love how they define her. Sassy, heart of gold, big hair. Well, that's fair. Uh, we must be talking about Teresa Caputo, the Long Island medium. She, she's New York born, raised medium, author of the book, There's More to Life Than This, Healing Messages, Remarkable Stories, and insight about the other side from the Long Island medium. People love this lady so much. Before she became famous, she had a two-year waiting list. Chip Kofi, gifted since birth. Chip is a psychic medium who was born in New York. A lot of them coming out of New York. I don't know what's up with that. Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe. And has spent much of the time in front of the camera. In addition to countless television interviews, he has worked with real-life ghost hunters on the series Paranormal State. Oh, that sounds really good. Alison Dubois, 
Allison is a beautiful medium who is inspiration in the tele television show Medium. In addition to inspiring TV shows, Allison's written many books about the afterlife, including this book, Don't Kiss Them Goodbye. And it's just on and on and on. I taught when I taught in the mainstream media on shows that dealt with mediums or spiritualists. And so it's, it's truly, um, don't go there. Just leave it alone. And I don't know what else to say. So at this point, he gets this witch. She brings up the old man. And here's what, it's, verse 14, chapter 28 picks up. An old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Now this is either a vision given by God or it's a pack of lies. Because God is wholly sovereign over the dead. He, he, he controls what happens the moment from our death going forward, period. So he can allow things to transpire. So it, it can be something that God allows a person to see a vision. That vision can be accurate. He can allow demonic beings to do things. But it's under the purview and ordination or the allowance or the permissive will of God to allow these things to take place. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me in bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warning, it, warning against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Now, here's the insanity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a means that's wholly in violation of God's law because God won't respond to me so I can talk to somebody to find out what God's up to. Did you guys miss that? Right? So I'm going to use a means that's in violation of God's law to find out what God's up to because he won't speak to me so I can get up with one of his prophets who can tell me what God might be up to. And there's the fruit of the pack of lies we'll believe and live according to. There, there's the bloom of decades of lies and deceit and delusions that I want to hear from God, but I won't talk to God because actually he's not talking to me. So I'm going to go talk to the nearest person I know that God could speak to, but he's not around. So I'll have to conjure up some demonic being to give me a story so it might update me on what God's up to. This isn't the Bible, by the way. This is crazy. This is the guy that was appointed by God to lead the, fir the first king over the nation of Israel. <laughs> and Samuel says, why do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you. Oh, my God. He just gives them the truth. And become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke of by me. So he's reminding him now. For the Lord tore this kingdom out of your hand and had given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalekith. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also to the hand of the Philistines. And here's the problem with the lies. When, when I run my ship according to a pack of lies and the ship starts to sink, there are usually other people in the ship when it goes down. And in this particular case, it was the nation of Israel and his children. And even in the midst of this, you see God's mercy. Because he says, this day tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Now, where, if this is the truth, where was Samuel? And Samuel was with God. And here's the message. If you have massively dropped the ball today, don't worry about it. His favor 
if, if he'll overlook through Christ these kind of failures, you got it made. And I don't mean to say that it's easy and it's right and you get a pass for your sin. But we serve a God who is so merciful that in Christ Jesus, that in Christ Jesus, that, that the most catastrophic failure I can commit before a holy God is wiped clean. It doesn't exist. And that's why as a Christian we proclaim Christ crucified in nothing less and nothing more. Because when I stand before a holy God, the punishment for my sin has been poured out on his son. And I hate the words, but it's true. I go scot-free. But at what a profound price. The agony of Calvary is, 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 the, is the barometer of God's hatred for sin. And when you see a holy, perfect man ridiculed, tortured, and murdered unjustly, then you start to see the price he paid for my sin. Boy, you look at this. How did a man appointed by God end up here? How did it happen? And it started with a lie. I can manage it myself. God can't be trusted. I know best. I can do it on my own. I'm sufficient in and of myself. I don't need other people to speak truth into me. I don't need to soak before God in his word. I don't need to designate and give God uh, time and make him a priority. It started where he says, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. But we don't take God at his word. And that's where we wind up. And so the question, you should be alarmed now if you're like me, because I'm still lying to myself. Can, how do we fix the lie? How do we fix the liar? And I would say to thy a Shakespeare quote, thine own self be true. But the problem is, is I, can't, I can't be true to myself. You look, you look at Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitingly above all things, deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Talk about me. Romans 3, 12, all have gone away, have together become worthless. There's no one good, not one. And so pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps isn't going to fix the problem because it can't fix the problem. And I'd give you a very simple answer that we proclaim Christ crucified. John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory and the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John 14.6 tells us that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to Father through me. And so I, I would say this this morning, as a, as a believer in Christ, if you've dropped the ball, just repent, return, go back to His Word, Write down the things you know you got to do. Soak in his word. Chisel out 20 minutes a day in his word. Period. Don't compromise. Find a brother or sister who's going to speak truth to you. Start praying on your knees. And praying on your knees is very uncomfortable, by the way. Do you know why? Because you're humbling yourself. You're really getting it right between me and where a holy God stands. And when a man's on his knees, he's never far to fall. And what we've witnessed here is two catastrophic falls. And John 8, 32 tells us this, then you will know the truth. And here's, man, rejoice. I want an amen. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Yeah, we either buy it or we don't. We either buy it or we don't. And so I would tell you this morning, seek the truth. 
And, and if you're sitting here going, Jonathan's a crackpot, I'm not sure about this, but I know I'm a liar, and I've had very little success with my lies in the past, repent. Go, go before a holy God and say, I don't know how to fix myself, but I believe you can. And pray a simple prayer. If, if you know, I rejoice with Joe, Lily, and Oliver here. Um, I don't know what God's going to call you to do. But I'll say this. When, when I got called to become a Christian, you know, I thought he was going to have me down at the boardwalk telling people about Jesus, and I did not want to go to the boardwalk. No, please don't. But let me tell you this, that, that when I can put my head on a pillow tonight and I can sleep the way I do, I'll go to the boardwalk seven days a week. Because with the truth comes a peace, comes a purpose, comes an assurance, comes a joy. And it's not that life is easy. <laughs> we didn't hear that life's easy in Africa, but it's not easy anywhere. But if you'll obey and go, my gosh, the balance of eternity hangs in our obedience. And I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I know it's the truth. So I'm going to pray for us in clothing. And um, let me pray. Father, we thank you for the truth. Father, I thank you that I couldn't find the truth, but you found me. And that, that, that through your providential order, through the power of a holy God, through your son, you have reached down to humanity and redeemed us. You have restored us. You have reconciled us to your father through the death of your son. And I don't even have to understand that to receive it. I simply have to say that I believe, knowing who I am, that who you are is the truth. So, Father, I pray for those here. I pray for the person tonight that came here this morning as a believer. Their life is a train wreck, knowing that you, the light would come on that they're free. And that is the truth. Father, I, I pray that if somebody's here in darkness, that, that the light would come on, that they would step from darkness to light, and that they would see, they could hear, that they could receive, that they could believe, and that they would know you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.